0: Everyone's so quiet. <laughs> Usually there's a lot, of, a lot of talking and stuff going on. Uh, so, um, It's always encouraging, I think, uh, when we see God moving in different ways. And I was just telling uh, David Ross that his prayer uh, during the announcements time, because uh, I didn't talk to him beforehand about what I'm preaching about, but his prayer was identical to what the message was. It was absolutely perfect. And so we see God already preparing us in his spirit, even in David's prayer, is that we will behold the glory of the glory of God. And so I just wanted just to point that out. It's just so wonderful. So actually, I'm going to open up in prayer. Father God, we come before you now, and we, we just thank you so much, Lord, just for who you are, Lord. And we just, just praise you, Lord, for just putting it on the hearts of men, Lord, to deliver your word. And Lord, so even with David this morning praying for us, Lord, we see your spirit at work among us. And we just praise you for that. And Lord, this morning I just pray that you will help us to behold your glory, Lord. That's what we seek to do this morning, is to behold your glory. So we just pray that your spirit will be among us uh, this morning, that your spirit will speak to our spirits, that we might uh, know you, more, love you more, and be like you more. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Sarah is a new Christian, and she seems to be growing very, very fast. And she seems to be becoming more like Christ every single day. She's more patient. She's more loving. She's more kind. And so all of her friends that see her uh, just can't believe that that this change that has taken uh, place in her. And Sarah... Just can't read the Bible fast enough. And she just loves to come to church. And she just loves to listen to sermons. And she's asking questions and questions as she's trying to behold the glory of God. Steve, on the other hand, has been a Christian for decades. And at this point, he doesn't feel like he's growing at all. And he doesn't really feel like he's Christ like at all. And he can't really remember the last time that he read his Bible. He can't remember the last time he looked forward to hearing the sermon preached. He likes to come to church because he likes, he likes the people is what he likes. But as far as the sermon, he can't remember the last time he looked forward to hearing God's words preached. He can't remember the last time that he beheld the glory of God. Bill's been a Christian for a few years now. And he wants to grow, but he doesn't really know how. He doesn't know how to become more like Christ. He remembers that thrill when he first became a Christian of learning and of growing and what true fellowship is. But now he kind of seems to be treading water as he's going along. He wants to behold the glory of God, but he doesn't really know how. He doesn't know where to start. He doesn't know where to begin. He doesn't know where, where to go. He wants to rekindle that first love of his. He wants to be Christ-like. All three of these people need to behold God. So that they might become like God. So that they might become like Christ. So this is just a one-point message this morning, and I'm just going to try to work it out. But if you understand this sentence, you understand everything I'm going to say, this is it. When you behold God's glory, you become like him. When you behold God's glory, you become like him. So I want to look back at Moses who beheld God's glory. And I want to start there, looking at Moses. The, the Israelites are uh, slaves in, in Egypt at this point, and they cry out to God to be rescued. And God listens to them, and God sends Moses to deliver them from Egypt. So Moses does. Moses goes there, and uh, he rescues the people. He leads them to And they leave Egypt and they go into the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai. And God is going to take this nation, this two million people who were born in slavery and grew up in slavery and lived as slaves. And he's going to transform these people into a nation. He's going to transform into a nation that is designed to, um, to bring God to the world and to be a witness of who God is. And so he brings them up to Mount Sinai when they get to the mountain they're at the foot of the mountain and the people are all gathered at the foot of the mountain and it says there's a thick cloud that's enveloping the mountain and there's smoke that's coming out of it it says the smoke is like the smoke that's coming out of a giant kiln and there's the there's thunder and there's lightning and the whole mountain is trembling and there's a the sound of this trumpet and it gets louder and it gets louder and it gets louder and the people are trembling they're terrified of this. God has come down to this mountain. God has come down to this mountain in fire. And he's at the top of this mountain. And the Lord calls Moses to go up to the top of this mountain. And I always kind of wonder, what did Moses think, right? Because all the people are trembling. There's two million people trembling. Do you think Moses is the only one who's not trembling? Or do you think he's right there with them? It seems like it would be pretty terrifying to go up to this mountain, to this you know cloud, this smoke-enveloped mountain. But Moses goes up there, and Moses speaks to God. And God gives him the law. God gives him these Ten Commandments. God takes these tablets, and with his own finger, he writes the law on these tablets, and he gives them to Moses to give to the people. While Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, he's up there for 40 days, the people start to wonder what happened to him. They see Moses disappear, uh, two million people terrified of this mountain. And Moses goes up there, and he doesn't come down. And a week passes, and a second week passes, and a third week passes, and a fourth week passes. And there, how many weeks that is? How many is 40? At least, like, almost six, right? So another week passes, another week passes. I'm trying to do the math, and I'm like, right, that's more than four. But anyway, he's gone for, you know, almost six weeks. They think he's gone. They think he's destroyed. They think he's never coming back. And so what they do is they decide that they're going to worship something. They they want to worship something. So everyone takes their jewelry, they give it, and they make this golden calf. And they begin to worship this golden calf. They've already forgotten God, who has just brought them out of Egypt, and they start to worship this golden calf. While Moses is up on the mountain, God tells him what the people are doing. And God tells him that his intention is to destroy these people because of what they're doing. And Moses begins to plead with God while he's still up on the mountain. He says, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring him out, in order to kill him in the mountains? And he pleads with God turn from your burning anger, relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Israel. And so Moses is pleading with God, and he's walking down the mountain, and he hears this noise, and he hears this singing. And he gets closer, and he sees the people dancing in front of this golden calf. And Moses' anger then burns hot. He takes these tablets, these tablets that were the work of God. It was the writing of God with his very own finger on these tablets. And Moses, in his anger, throws them to the ground, and he breaks them at the foot of the mountain in front of all of the people. After this confrontation with the people, we pick up the story of Moses again, and Moses is still pleading with God. He's still pleading with God to save the people. And it says that God listened to him. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God then tells Moses to go back up the mountain a second time. So Moses goes up the mountain a second time, and he beholds God's glory again. Moses, gets, uh, Moses goes up there, and God renews the covenant, and, Moses, and God gives him new um, tablets. But Moses is on the mountain again for 40 days, and this time he doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. He spends 40 days beholding the glory of God. He comes down after 40 days of beholding the glory of God, and he is different. He is different inside, and he is different outside. He comes down, and his face is shining. His face is glowing. It's reflecting the glory of God. And he comes down, and the people see him, and they are terrified of him because he's been up to the mountain for 40 days. He comes down, and his face is shining, and they are terrified of him. And so Moses comes down, and he tells them what God has commanded him to do, and then he puts a veil over his face. And he leaves the veil over his face. Moses would speak to God. There was a tent called the tent of meeting. Moses would go into this tent and he would speak to God face to face. It would be be God. And he would go in there. When he went in that tent of meeting, he would remove the veil because he was speaking to God. And he came out and he would have the veil removed and he would speak to the people and he would tell the people what it was that God had told them. And then he would put the veil back over his face. Can you just imagine what that is like? To behold the glory of God? To have your face reflect the glory of God? Moses beheld the glory of God and he was changed. He was changed. He didn't change himself. It was by beholding the glory of God. That Moses was changed. And so in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tries to tell us what the glory of Christ is like. And the Apostle Paul is thinking, how am I going to tell them what the glory of Christ is like? What can I use for them that they will understand? And he thinks back to Moses and Moses beholding this glory. And he thinks of Moses and the Old Covenant and he compares them to Christ and the New Covenant. The old covenant was the law, and the old covenant brought death because you were supposed to keep the law completely. But no one could keep it completely. The punishment was death. Therefore, the old covenant brought death. Jesus Christ comes in, and he forgives our sins, and he gives us life. And so he compares this covenant of death with this covenant of life. So this is where we want to read today. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to 18, because we want to see how Paul looks at this and uh, what we can learn from it. So 2 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 18. says this. God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only, only through Christ is it taken away. So see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, look, if the glory of God that was seen in the ministry of the law, which only brought condemnation and death, right, if it was so great that Moses' face would shine so bright that the people couldn't even look at it, he's saying, look, if that glory was that great, how much greater, how much greater is the glory of Christ who gives us forgiveness and life? That gave us death, and there was a glory in that law but he's saying this is Christ, and he's given us life. Look at the glory that comes from here. If what was temporary is being brought to an end, how much greater is this that's going to be permanent? The comparison is so great that once, that once had this great glory, it appears to have no glory at all, because this, this other glory surpasses it. It's so much greater. So it's like this. You're driving at night, and it's dark. It's pitch black out, and you turn on your lights, and you turn on your, your high beams, and now you can see the road. But if it's the middle of the day and you turn on those same lights, you can't even see it. You don't even know, in fact, that your lights are on. Why? Because the glory of the sun is so much greater than the glory of the headlights. And Paul is saying this. He's saying, look, this glory is so much greater that it's almost as if that had no glory at all. Just because the glory of Christ and his uh, giving of life is just so much greater than what what the other glory was. So he says, once, what once had glory seems to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. And Paul says this, which is even more amazing than this. He says, when you behold that glory, you will become like Christ himself. When you behold that glory, you will become like Christ himself. We want to be changed. We want to behold this glory. We want to be like Christ. So what we want to do this morning is look at three questions. What does this change look like or what are we becoming? How are we changed? And how do we behold the glory of God? So what are we becoming? You are being transformed into Christ's image you are becoming more and more like Christ. You have more fruit of the Spirit, more love, joy, and peace. You have more patience and kindness and goodness. You have more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. You will love God more. You will love His people more. You'll be less judgmental. And you're going to see your sin Much quicker. And it's going to bother you more, right? Because Christ is without sin. And so as we become more and more like Christ, as God, through his Spirit, changes us, just like God changed Moses, and if we say Christ has no sin, and we're becoming like Christ, and we have sin in our lives, we're going to see that much quicker. And it's going to sting more, and we're going to repent much quicker because we don't want that sin in our life because it's us being made into Christ who has no sin. And if we're made like that, that sin, we're not going to be able to tolerate it as well. So going back to the story of Moses, um, God had made a promise to Abraham. And he promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the the stars in the sky and the sand... uh, of the sea and so Abraham what started with Abraham and his wife is now at this point two million people there's two million people that have been from God's promise that are currently there that out of you I will make this great nation and Moses is on the mountain and Moses is talking to God and he's, God is telling him that these people have made this golden calf they've forsaken me they're worshipping someone else they have disregarded me and his wrath is burning on him. And he tells Moses that he's going to destroy them all. He's going to destroy these two, actually he's going to destroy 1,999,999 because he's going to save Moses. He's I'm going to destroy everybody except for you, Moses. And I'm going to make this nation through you. And God could still fulfill the to Abraham through Moses using this because Moses was Abraham's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. And so he could still do it. But Moses cries out to God. And listen to what he says. He says, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is saying, if you don't forgive them, if you destroy them, then blot me out of your book and destroy me as well. He says, my lot is with these people. And he's willing to give his life for these people. Because for God's promise to be complete, God needs a descendant. And Moses is saying, I will give my life for these people. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus Christ. What did he do? He gave his life for us. He gave his life for us. This is what it means to become Christ-like. It's to have that love for other people. It's the, love, the Apostle Paul said the same thing. I think it was in Romans where he says, I would give up my salvation for my own people. It's to become like christ so as we become, as we behold Christ, we become like Christ. Ultimately, we will be made holy completely. We will be in heaven with God. And at that time, we will have no sin. We will be sinless because God will have forgiven our sins. We're going to have a new body. No sin, no corruption, no aging, no anything. And you know what? We're going to see God face to face. We will look into his eyes. And we will see him smile. And we will walk with him. See, our whole life, our whole Christianity, from, from the beginning to eternity, is one of beholding the glory of God so that we might become like Christ. So, how are we changed? That's what we're changed into. The next question is, how are we changed? How does this, how does this process happen? First of all, we need to realize that God is the author and the power of this change, not us. God is the author and the power of this change, not us. So our change begins when we behold Jesus Christ for that first time. And so in verse 4, it said, But their minds were unhardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses has read a veil, lies over their heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's turning to Christ. It's, it's repenting of our sins. It's going to Christ. It's saying, look, we are helpless. We, under this covenant of law, so we've failed. We've sinned. And it's coming to Christ in that repentance. And that veil is lifted. God removes the veil when we come to Christ. So that's how it's begun. And the Spirit continues to make us holy, make us more like Christ our whole lives. And ultimately, it's going to be the Father who, who completes it. Philippians 1.6, I am sure this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So in other words, we don't make ourselves holy and then God accepts us because we're holy, but it's the opposite. God forgives our sins. God saves us through Jesus Christ. And then, because we are saved, he makes us holy, because we are his. So this change occurs as we behold the glory of God. So think about it, right? From a logic point, it makes sense. If you want your faith to increase, it has to increase by trusting God more. So you have to look at God more. You have to pray to God more. You have to see God's uh, sovereignty more. If you want your faith to increase, you need to look for God. If you want your love for God to increase, it has to increase by knowing him more, by praying more, by spending time with him. That's the only way that it can increase. So all of this stuff from a logical point of sense is that if we behold Christ more, we will change more. We will become like him more. There, you can't have it any other way than, other than beholding Christ. Um, so if you want to be like Christ, if you want more life in your Christian life, then you must behold God. So, uh, next on how does this change occur, we need to understand that being transformed is a process. Being transformed is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. doesn't happen right away. doesn't happen the same for every people, but it's different in every single person. So if you notice in verse 18, it says, we are being transformed. We are being transformed. So it implies that process. That, that verse says, you will not be changed instantly, and neither will your husband. Either will your wife or your brother or your sister or your friend or your boss. It's all, it's all this process. God is continually changing you, continually changing you, making you more and more like Christ. It doesn't stop until you get to heaven. And I guess I would say it probably doesn't stop in heaven because we'll behold Christ face to face. So it probably is accelerated, I'm guessing, in heaven. But so this is sometimes fast and this is sometimes slow, right? So think about the grass. In the spring, the grass will grow in like two days or three days with the rains and the sun to lawnmower height. That same grass in August will still grow, but it will take weeks to grow that much. That grass in the middle of the winter is dormant. It appears to be dead. If you would look at it, it almost seems like it's dead. It's lost its color. It's brown. It's it's not growing. There's just nothing happening at all. And so our growth is sometimes like that. Sometimes we see this great growth quickly. And sometimes it just seems to drag on. So we don't, we don't feel like we're even growing at all. And so new Christians seem to grow real, real quick. And you know why? It's because they're trying to learn. They're trying to understand. Everything is new. So they're beholding the glory of God for the first time. They read their Bibles in order to understand They listen to sermons. They try to remember them. They try to figure it out. They try to know what it is that the pastor is saying. They talk to other people. They ask questions. They're beholding the glory of God. And so there seems oftentimes to be this rapid growth in new Christians as they behold this glory of God. Older Christians oftentimes will go through periods where there's little apparent growth. And this could be for a number of reasons. I just want to point out two reasons. Number one is sometimes they stop reading their Bibles. They don't listen as close to the sermons. And actually, going back to the Bibles, they don't read it that much. And if they do, they just kind of read it just to check it off. It's like, okay, I read my Bible. You know, or I feel like I should read the Bible. And so what's the minimum? One verse, a paragraph, a chapter. And they just kind of go through it. They don't spend that time looking at the glory of God as they read their Bible. And the cares of this world start to creep in. And start to overtake things. And it pushes out that time that they spent beholding the glory of God. So they spend less and less times. That's one of the reasons. Another reason is that sometimes God places us in these apparent fruitless times on purpose. So that we will be forced to grow in faith. So that we'll have to rely on God when we don't see him. When we don't feel him we rely on faith because we know he's there. And so during those times like Job who who was, you know, lost lost everything. He lost his uh, most of his family except for his wife. He lost his uh, his house, his wealth, his crops, ended up his health. He was sitting on the roadside and his three best friends are doing nothing but condemning him. This is why God's punishing him. This is why God's punishing him. This is what you did wrong. This is what you did. And they're just they're just hounding him. They're just heckling him. He sees no relief from anywhere. And he cries out, Though he slay me, though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. You see how much his faith grew during those times? Even though God slays me, I will still hope in him. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see myself, and my eyes behold and not another. Job is saying this when he doesn't see God. He's saying, no, he slay me. I will yet hope in God. I will see God. And so during that time that appears to be fruitlessness, there was so much growth that's taken place in Job. So he comes out. What could possibly shake Job's faith if this didn't shake his faith? If this suffering didn't shake his faith, what could possibly shake his faith? Nothing can shake Job's faith because he's gone through that time. So sometimes those times, God brings us to intentionally in order to increase our faith. One of the things that's helpful in that time. So there's something that's helpful and there's something that's, uh, that's a cure. So what's helpful in that time is to look back and kind of use this long time vision or this long range vision. So if you're going through one of those times, where were you five or ten years ago? has there been growth? Don't you love God more? Don't you love God's people more? Aren't you more patient, more kind, more gentle than you were before? And how are you compared to when you first became a Christian? Surely you've changed from then, right? Surely you're a different person. Things that used to shake your faith don't shake them as much. When you're a first Christian, anything that comes down shakes your faith. It's like, well, I thought God, and if God, then why is this happening? And it shakes your faith. But those things don't shake your faith as much. And those things that you used to see as normal, those things that you just thought were just normal, what you did and what everyone did, you now see as sinful. And you see it through God's eyes. And you're quicker to repent. So it's helpful to look back at those things and realize, no, you're not perfect. You're not holy. You're not um, without fault or a sin. But there has been growth in there. So that's a helpful thing, but that kind of puts the focus on us and our growth. But it is good to see, because when you look at that, you don't look and say, oh, I've done more, but you say, you know what, there has been growth, and that growth is from God. So more of the cure is to behold the glory of God. That's where the cure goes, so that when you're with Job, he's not looking at all this stuff, but he's saying, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, for I know that my Redeemer lives. You know, one thing, too, is that Satan wants to stop you from beholding the glory of Christ. He actively wants to stop you to do that. And so, as you, think about, as you think about this, right, what is the most glorious thing that Christ did? He came to earth and he died on the cross to forgive our sins. Jesus Christ came and he forgave our sins, right? We were enemies of God. We hated God. We were dead in our sins, and he came, and he called us, and he forgives our sins, and he saves us, and it is a glorious thing. But sometimes that I'm amazed because you even add to that glory the fact that we keep on sinning, and he doesn't reject us. It seems like he would reject us after that time, but his glory is seen in His forgiving our sins after he's already forgiven our sins, in an essence, right? Where we've sinned after we've done that. So we know what He did. We know what it cost him. We know all of these things. We know what's right and we know what's wrong, we know what we should do, we know what we shouldn't do, and we sin anyway. And Jesus forgives our sin. Isn't that amazing? When the Apostle Paul looks at that, he says, where sin increases, grace abounds even more. Then he says, should we, should we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? Because he realizes the grace of that. He's like, well, if we really want God's grace to increase, right, we should keep sinning even more because he keeps free. <laughs> Afterwards, he's like, well, no, that's probably a bad idea. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's like, look, if you understand this grace, this grace that, that he forgives us, after he's already forgiven us, it's just an amazing thing to look at. But what does Satan do? Does Satan let us see that glory? He tries to go in there after we've sinned, right? And he condemns us, right? And so, you know, we already feel bad that we've sinned, right? And we kind of beat ourselves up, and we say, man, I can't believe that I that I did that. And And we feel like we've disappointed God so much that he can't possibly sin us, forgive us. And then... Satan comes in there, and it's just attack, attack, always in our face, right? I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you. Look at what you did. And God will never forgive you. How could God possibly forgive someone like you? And he comes in, and he comes in, and he's saying this, and he's saying this. So he causes us, or he tries to make us, um, uh, he causes us or pushes us to live in this state of failure instead of an awareness of the state of forgiveness. We don't live in a state of failure. We live in a state of forgiveness. But he keeps pushing in when we sin. And so after we sin, it's the hardest time to behold the glory of God. It's the hardest time to see his grace in forgiving us. And yet we need need to behold the glory of God after we've sinned the most. And so even going back to the picture of Moses, right? When did Moses reflect God's glory the most? Was it the first time up the mountain or the second time up the mountain? It was the second time. It seemed like it should be the first time, right? Everything seems pure, right? It's the first time. He's seen this glory of God. God's giving him the law for the first time. With God's own finger, he writes all these tablets and he gives it to Moses. You would think that would be the time that he'd be reflecting God's glory the most, but it isn't. It's after... He broke the tablets on the ground in his anger it's after the people have worshipped the golden calf. It is after he prayed to God and asked to forgive the sins. It is after he pleads to spare the people. Then he goes up to the mountain and um, he sees God and um, <laughs> I made the mistake of looking at my notes when I was when I was going to- so here's what I, He goes up the mountain, right? It's after all this stuff happens, and he sees God's glory. And God renews the covenant with him. And God gives him new tablets. And God reveals his glory then, after he sinned. God reveals his glory greater the second time than the first time because he has forgiven their sins. He has renewed their covenant. He has, in essence, said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You have done the worst thing that you could do. Moses is up here getting the the holy, sacred law for me, and you're down here worshiping a golden calf, a cow you're worshiping. It's the worst thing you could do. And God is saying, I forgive you. This is the glory of God. He's saying, I forgive forgive you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If there was a time for me to leave you or forsake you, this would be it. He's already told Moses, I'm going to destroy them all. You're the only person. That whole Abraham thing is going to look like a giant pyramid to two million people, followed by one person, and I'm going to do it all over again. God is saying, if there is a time that I'm going to leave you or forsake you, this is it. And Moses comes down and his face reflects the glory of God as seen in God. Forgiving our sins. A picture of Jesus Christ forgiving our sins. So if beholding the glory of God, if that's the way we become like him, then how do we behold the glory of God? And I've got six different ways that we can behold the glory of God. Number one is by reading our Bible and meditating on it. Reading our Bible and meditating on it. Charles Spurgeon says, we read too much and think too little. How many times do we read our Bible and just close it and put it on the shelf without stopping to, to, to just look at it and just to see the glory of God that's found in this, in this God's word that he's, that he's given to us? You know, most of the Paul's letters are split in half. So you take Ephesians, for example. The whole first three passages chapters of ephesians are just the glory of jesus christ chapter one glory of christ chapter two glory of christ chapter three the glory of christ chapters four five and six which are the ones we think of right which is you know don't let the sun go down in your anger and you know the husbands and wives children fathers slaves you know all this stuff we look at those but four five and six are only it's like look look at the glory of christ and you're becoming like christ in his glory and this is what it's going to look like as you walk this out in your life. But so often we go to 4, 5, and 6 and just skim over 1, 2, or 3, if we even read them. But lots of times we're looking, where's that anger thing? I remember something about the sun and the anger and sleeping. And where is it? We maybe do like a concordance search for sun or anger or something. And we find it right there. But we don't spend the time reading 1, 2, and 3 so we see this glory of God. The other one is by hearing the word preached and then thinking about it after. Thinking about it afterwards, just just dwelling on it um, by looking. Number three, by looking at God in creation, God has revealed Himself to us in the creation. And so, whether you're taking a walk or ride or driving in a car, and we see this creation, we see God's beauty around us. We see the sunset over a lake. We see the snow fallen, in the woods. We see all this beauty. This is Christ in us. And it's designed for us to behold his glory. God is not God's glory is not just displayed in the spiritual kind of you know, world where we keep it in our head, but in the physical world in front of us. It is God's glory is all over the place. And that it as you as you see God's glory in creation, it goes on to write number four, which is spending time in praise and thanking God in order to praise God in order to thank God or to give him thanksgiving we have to see God and we have to see what he does that's why praise and thanksgiving is so important because it lets us behold God how can I thank God if I don't know what he did how can I praise God if I don't know what he's doing That's why so many of the psalms are like, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord with the trumpet, with this, with that. It's just like, you know, let everybody praise the Lord. Because this is how we're changed. And so if you want to behold the glory of God, praise God. Thank God. Because you need to look at God in order to thank him. In order to praise God. That's why praise and thanksgiving is so essential. It's how we become like Christ. Number five, we... We can behold God by seeing Him in other people. We are His family, right? We are His body. We are His temple. So we see God working in our lives. It's looking for those evidences of grace in other people's lives. As we read Paul's letters, we see so many times where he's, he's thanking them. He says, I thank God because your love for one another is increasing. I thank God because your love for Him is increasing. And then he says... I thank God for your faithfulness in times of struggle, in times of hardship. I thank God because I see your faithfulness in those times. One of the ways that we see God's glory the most is when we see people go through struggles and go through trials. Because we see someone who's relying on and so we see them as they go through. And I was thinking even just like, how many stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see God's glory most when people are in the worst situation? Daniel in the lion's den. He is thrown into a pit that's full of lions. Can you get worse than that? <laughs> right? Right? These lions probably haven't been fed for a week, right? This is definitely a struggle. This is definitely a hard time. This is a guy who's going through life with no problems at all. And we see God's glory the greatest because God delivers Daniel in a time of trial. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Same time. They're thrown into a fire. They heat this fire up so much that the guys that are heating up the fire get burned and die. That's how hot the fire is. They go in there. We see God's glory because they're not burned. But again, how much worse can it be to be thrown into a fire? You know, it's like, I burn my my finger playing with my fireplace, you know, trying to get everything right. I'm like we've been in pain. And these people are thrown in there. But we see God's glory. And see, we see God's glory as we behold brothers and sisters going through struggles, going through trials. And we are open with what we're going through. We say we're going through this and we pray for each other and we see God's glory as he's working out in our lives so that someone can say, even if God slays me, I will trust in him. I know my Redeemer lives. I will see him face to face. I want to just close just by reading Colossians uh, just so that we can behold God's glory. I wanted to read the first three chapters of Ephesians, because that's so wonderful, but that would have taken like half our time, so I'm just going to read just a few verses, and and just listen to this, and either read along or close your eyes, whatever you want to do, but the purpose is to think and to hear these words. Colossians 1, 15, and I'm just going to stop in, I think, 22, so it's kind of halfway through a paragraph, but Just listen to this. Close your eyes if you want to. Anything that enables you to listen. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether it's thrones and dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order that he pre- might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we want to behold your glory. We want to know the God who is above all things. We want to know Jesus Christ who is made in the image of God, who is the exact image of God, the one who came from heaven to reconcile us to you, to reconcile those who hated you, to reconcile those who were dead in their sins, but who were made alive in Christ Jesus. We want to know the power of your resurrection. Jesus we want to know you. We pray that your spirit might fill us with that love and that knowledge. Lord, let us know the height and the breadth and the depth and the length, O oh Lord. Let us know your love. Let us behold your glory so that we might become like you. Lord, let us see your greatness, your vastness, your immensity. Your love, Your power, Your glory, Your dominion. Let us see that, Lord. Reveal that to, you, to us, Lord. That You've lifted the veil, Lord, when You saved us. And now, Lord, fill us that we might, like Moses, reflect Your glory. In Jesus' precious, in His holy day, we pray these things. Amen.